Romans chapter 9. If you're here this morning and maybe forgot your Bible in the car or at home and you don't have the Bible on a device, uh, please raise your hand. We have usher standing there in the back ready to see your hand and give you a scripture to follow along with. Keep your hands up high. Anyone else? The Bible will follow along with. Romans chapter 9 this morning. And we're going to continue on discussing from God's Word how our hearts can become discouraged at times, longing to see our friends, family, and co-workers, neighbors come to know Christ as their Savior, and it seems like they don't. How do we utilize God's Word to help us? Help our hearts be settled, be comforted by understanding how he does save. Instead of focusing upon which God currently may not be doing, let's talk about how he is doing what we discern he's not doing and how he always desires to save. Okay? Uh, Let's read this morning. Uh, For those of you who are guests, we're just journeying through the book of Romans last year and this year, and you say you'd take that long to go through this short of a book. Not typically, but uh, this year, last year and this year, yes. Um, But let's read these verses that are meant to be words of encouragement, not discouragement. And we'll unpack the truths here and leave Certainly more comforted this morning. Verse number 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, the thing molded? Will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay? To make from the same lump one vessel for honor, use another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. We've been discussing recently how God saves. We realized earlier in the chapter that he saves faithfully. Last week we discussed 
that God saves mercifully. And this morning we're going to discuss God saves righteously. God saved righteously. And often when we think of the righteousness of God and he saves righteously, especially in the book of Romans, you might think of Christ's imputed righteousness at the point that we're justified by faith. When I, when I use the title here uh, or this third section of, uh, of Romans 9 that God saves righteously, I want you to think in terms of equitably or fairly or justly. God saves righteously. Certainly the book of Romans does talk about imputed righteousness at faith. We understand that. We've already talked about that last year. But God does save, and he is fair when he does it. And we're going to unpack again these words to discuss how God saves fairly, and it's going to help us deal with the anguish in our hearts over those who we we long to be saved, who have yet to trust Christ. And he begins this section yet with another question. Paul addresses his own heart in verses 6 to 13. He anticipates a question that not only has come to his own heart, but also the heart of the Roman people at the beginning of verse 14. What shall we say then? And he answers that by saving, say, saying, uh, detailing how God saves mercifully. Verse 19, you will say to me then. So Paul's yet anticipating another question, not necessarily from his own heart or from their hearts collectively, but from their heart. Why does he still find fault or who resists his will? And he answers, we'll find out in a moment, their questions or their anticipated questions with a few more questions to immediately dispel any fear in their heart. And after he dispels their fear in their heart um, by answering a question (laughs) from their question, he begins to detail uh, further how he fairly or justly or rightly saves people. So does God still find fault? Or who resists his will? Let me tell you what's going on in the mind, or he's anticipating would go on the mind of the Roman believer when they, when they have this letter written to them. In other words, if God's got it all mapped out, if God's got it all mapped out, why do we need to be ambassadors for Christ anyway? Now, you have to remember something. The Roman people were not a, um, not a people that were doubters. They were not a people that were debaters. Go back to the beginning of last year as we went over uh, an overall book study of, the, of this people. We realized that these people were spirit-filled people. They were word-saturated people. They had done a tremendous gospel work in the city of Rome. They've done a gospel work that's so comprehensive and thorough that the Apostle Paul would tell them, we'll see this later on this year, that I really have no desire to come to Rome to stay with you, but I'll come only to use you as a springboard to taking the gospel either farther west into Spain, because you folks have done a great job in Rome, and you will continue to do a great job in Rome, 
And he says in the same chapter, Romans 15, I, come, I intend not to lay another gospel foundation on the foundation you've already laid. So these were, these were good people. So when Paul's working himself and now them out of their own anguish over why some people don't seem to be saved, he's anticipating now this third question exclusively coming from them. But this question is not attitudinal in its nature. It's very critical that we understand that. They're not argumentative. They're just wondering. So this would be like a little one sitting in Sunday school and they might have read to them, been read, read to them by their teacher, Ephesians 1 or 1 Peter 1, and, and uh, that, that God had foreknown, God had predestined. And those words are put on elementary terms. How someone that God in eternity past would, would know. Okay? You would mark off beforehand some that would be saved and and a little mind might hear, well, why some and not others? And that little hand might go up and say, so why some and not others? And the teacher might explain, it's a mystery. Do you know what a mystery is, sweetheart? A mystery is something that's too profound for us to be able to fully understand. But we know that God does save. God does save. And the question might come back, well, if God knows who is, then he must know who's not. So why do we need to share the gospel anyway? And the answer might come back from the teacher because God's given us a command. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And only God knows. But what we know is we're supposed to go. And God saved you because he's got people that he knows he wants you to lead to Christ. So that's kind of the mindset with which these questions are being asked by the Roman people. They're honest. They're simple. And they're probably questions you've had too, right? If you've been in the Lord for a certain amount of time, these are questions you've had too. But they're answered. And this, this, the rest of this text clearly outlines for us how God justly, rightly, fairly uh, saves. I would like to say uh, that God saves with intention when he righteously saves. And I'm going to outline three particular ways for you this morning to help you understand this immediate context, how God intentionally saves. Are you ready? Right. So verse, the second half of verse 20 through verse 24 is going to teach us that he saves with divine intention. Very important to us for him. This is a heavenly matter. This is a matter of God's nature. It's, it's, it's God's desire to save. There's divine intention here. What we'll realize in verses 25 and 26 together, that God saves with global intention. His scope is global. And finally this morning, God saves with sincere intention in verses 27 to 29. Sincere intention. 
So we'll go back here to the second part of verse 20 and verse 24. Let's find out about God's divine intention. We've already read these verses, and he begins answering some natural questions, as we've already discussed, offered by spirit-filled souls with some questions of his own divine intent and his answer. And again, I think any time a Christian struggles with clarity on a deep subject in God's word, he or she at times just needs to step back and realize who's in control and who's got this whole thing anyway. Paul is not chastising these folks with a sarcastic response anymore that they were asking with an attitudinal intention. He's simply saying, if you don't understand, are you ready? This is really profound. Okay. If you don't understand, we have a creator who loves to save sinners. You may not fully understand how he does this, but he does, and he saves fairly and equitably. You'll remember as we read these verses, the use of the metaphor of the molder and the molded and the powder and the clay. Remember that as we read that earlier? The use of this metaphor or these metaphors, is, are, it's, it's often used in the scriptures in various contexts. If you love to study your Bible and the way metaphors are used, go ahead and look at Old and New Testaments and study these out for yourselves. But why are these metaphors used within this immediate context? Well, first of all, I want you to remember these things. The molded is the same as the clay. The molder is the same as the potter. The potter here is God. The molded or the clay are just sinners. Sinners. Clay is clay. Now we've already discovered from Romans chapter 5, where do sinners come from? For as by one man sin entered into the world, and so there's death by sin, for sin has passed upon all Mankind. We learned from Romans 3, a familiar verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We went clear back at the end of Romans chapter 1 into Romans chapter 2. And we found out that, that, that God even, God the Spirit even compartmentalized through the hand of Paul uh, different sections of humanity. Remember the irreligious? The religious, right? The Jew, the Greek, the whole world. All men are under the wrath of God because all men have sinned. Clay's clay. Clay is clay. It's by our nature that we're conceived in sin. Therefore, when we're born, we end up being creatures of God's wrath and his sin. But God fairly saves. So always remember that. He justly saves. He equitably saves. So clay is clay, but the potter is the potter. <laughs> what do we know about God in relationship to salvation, not just inside this text that we'll see, but other texts? God is not willing that any should what? Perish, but that how many? All should come to Repentance. We understand from 2 Peter 3.9 that he's not even slow concerning his promise. But he's long-suffering towards all men. 
we learn from the testimony of our own Savior and his own pledge of allegiance for his own intention in coming that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We learned at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were still the spiritually walking dead, he that believeth in me, I'll save. We know from Philippians chapter 2, as Paul writes, of that great hypostatic union of God becoming man and the missional intention of why God became man to be obedient even unto the death of the cross. God fairly and equitably say, the clay's clay, but the potter's the potter. Man's in trouble, but there is an answer to their trouble that sin's caused, and the answer's in God's intention. It's in His nature to save, and His desire to save. What is also true about this text as we move on? There are vessels of honor, the text said, that we read, and vessels to dishonor. There are some, basically all this is saying, who are saved and some who are not. And God's divine purpose is realized in both the saved and the unsaved. But there's two very critical things we need to understand here about God's intention being realized in both. He wills those who are saved to be saved. The text says it, doesn't it, that we read. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Remember last week, he mercifully saved. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. But we also understand something of his intention by the response of unsaved men. The unsaved man also wills his own destiny. Paul goes on to say, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, and what's the next phrase there say? Prepared for destruction. The word prepared here in the Greek language is in the middle voice. And all that simply means is, this is something man decided to do for himself. The preparation for destruction here is separate from God's intention for those who would be saved by his mercy to demonstrate his glory. This is man's will, what man decides himself. This is what the clay decides to do, regardless of what the potter says. Remember, the potter's going to be the potter, the clay's going to be the clay. God judges those who have already decided to reject. That's what the text says. And therein lies the mystery. Therein lies the mystery. If you overthink the mystery, you'll lose your mind. But if you don't think about it at all, you'll lose your soul. But God saves fairly. The Bible does not teach 
that God decided to save some and God decided to damn others. The Bible does not teach that. God does ultimately judge, but here, according to the middle voice, it's man decides to reject. I'll leave the rest up to God. He's got this. All I know is he saves, and he saves fairly, and he saves equitably. But I think it profoundly important this morning to again recognize words that are not used in this text that are often used by man who preach or explain this text. Right? For those of you who are younger in the Lord, I don't want you to check out here, but check out here for a little bit because some of this stuff you'll just choke on. This is stuff that you'll learn. The Bible talks about, for those of you that have been recently saved, we've got some folks in here that have been saved in the last couple of weeks. Um, the Bible says that as a newborn baby, you're going to desire to crave the sincere milk of the word. The milk of the word in that text is, um, it can be panoramically the whole word, but simply uh, the, the simple things of God's word. Just like when you bring a baby home, he, can only, he or she can only uh, drink milk, right? something simple. Right? Uh, and as they grow older, they'll grow into mashed peas and Cheerios and, 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 and maybe little morsels of bread and, and then meat and so forth and so on. The spiritual life is just the same. There's some people that have been saved have been saved in here for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. So this comment's primarily for them. But there's, ver there's, there's, there's words like election, calling, predestination, foreknowledge. You're not going to see them in this text, do you? So don't put them here. Be honest with the text. There are other passages that use those. Like I said earlier, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. And what we discovered in Romans chapter 8, all for the purposes of assurance and encouragement, but they're not used here. All the Bible's saying is, is that God saves faithfully, mercifully, and justly, righteously, fairly. And this is how he does it. Don't treat your great commission life as, well, God's got all this. I don't have any responsibility because you do. There's tremendous activity that we're compelled by grace to do in going into all the world and preach the gospel. As 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, we are, we are called to be ambassadors of the gospel to a lost and dying world because God is still saving people and he's doing so fairly. He can't help himself but do so justly and equitably. And don't you want to be a part of that? Amen. You already are in your position in Christ now in your explanation of him to others. But most notable about this text is the emphasis that Paul places on an attribute of God that many fail to heavily consider when it comes to God fairly saving man who is continually rejecting his offer of salvation. God is patient. Did you notice that when we read it earlier? Verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, what? Makrathumia. Patience with mankind. We discussed this last week in relationship to Pharaoh, right? Remember Pharaoh, I let you be born. Pharaoh, I let you, I let you grow up in opulence. 
Pharaoh, I let you become the ruler of the known world. Pharaoh, I've let you rule for a few years now. Pharaoh, I've let you oversee with your predecessors the demise of my own people as you brought them for safety into slavery. Pharaoh, I've endured with your progeny for 400 years. Pharaoh, I've let you live through all of these plagues. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. I've let you live through watching your own army die, come back home, see your own son die. Pharaoh, you're still alive. Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. Right? Study the history of the Ninevites, my friends. By the time they're preached to through the lips of Jonah, follow their multi-millennial storied history in the past of people who were just not only enemies of God, but enemies of mankind and enemies of one another in very tragic, dark ways. But God still allowed them the opportunity to be saved. Think of the life of people like Demas in the the New Testament, who was an eyewitness to the apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul for well over, some say, two decades of time And Paul, in his last will and testament in 2 Timothy 4, says, my heart's broken in my last hours. Demas has left me, having loved this present world, and he's gone back to Thessalonica. God's patient. God's patient. Can I say this? God's patience is mentioned here as the primary attribute of his nature. In relationship to his equitable equitable ability to save. Out of all the attributes that the that the spirit of God could have written through the hand of Paul that could have that could have described how God fairly saves here, he picks patience. And for some who are here this morning, who the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross and died a violent death because of your sin, who have yet to realize Christ is your own Lord and Savior, could I encourage you to understand that God is demonstrating his ability to fairly save you by giving you more time? And, and, and folks that have come here months, weeks, months, years who, who, are, who have still yet to bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't assume upon his grace, my friends. You've heard his word. You've watched family members live that grace. And you've seen a demonstration of some kind of miraculous power that changed the way they think, talk, act. You gather around a company of these people and you hear them sing from the top of their lungs, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. You look at the joy that they have, you see that nowhere else in the world. And they're living as light in a dark place. It's becoming darker and darker on this earth. My friends, you're looking in the face of God and you're saying no, because a few things just don't make sense to you just yet. God's patient with you. It is impossible to please God without faith. You need to look at your own pride as you try to figure something out. 
Confess your pride as sin to God and know the joy of Jesus Christ. Know the joy of Jesus Christ. He endured with much patience. But he also talks about vessels of glory. This is God's active part. He did save rightly, fairly, justly vessels that would bring glory to him. And grace is only seen in this text in preparing vessels for glory. Grace is not seen in this text in relationship to those who have decided themselves to spurn salvation in Christ. And, and even we see saints in the revelation and the eschaton to come surrounding the throne of God, begging him to avenge the blood of their martyred friends and relatives. Remember that? In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, by the way, I think that's a great cross-reference to write in the margin of your Bible next to verse 23. Man rejects, but the potter's the potter. The potter saves vessels unto glory. And how long is he patient with men and mankind? Even apparently until after he's come back to take the church to heaven. And the church is surrounding his throne in Revelation chapter 6, and we're going through the early days of the great tribulation period, and God is still patiently, just a little bit at a time, letting out more slack to mankind. Let's out a little bit more slack. One seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal judgment. A little bit more slack, and he holds it. And where there's judgment, remember last year, last week? Wherever there's judgment in the Bible of God, there's always what that accompanies it? Mercy. Every time there's judgment and more slack's let out, a few people perish, you reject, but then still bazillions are offered the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He'll hold that rope until man rejects again, and he lets it slip. It's almost as if God, if I could not be irreverent here, is getting rope burned. On his hands. He doesn't want to let it go, but he does because he's just, but he's also loving, but he's patient. He's patient. How long, oh Lord? It doesn't make sense to even glorified saints singing hymns around the throne. How long, how long, how long? He's patient. And why is he patient? Well, in the end of the day, the text tells us that the judgment upon all unbelieving men is going to be a demonstration of God's power through final wrath. In the end of the day, I'm just a human being, so like, and I have four kids, right? So you know how you kind of give your kids slack? You know, you didn't do this one time, uh, all right, you did wrong, right? Yeah, dad, sorry. Okay, don't be sorry, just don't do it again. Right, it's a famous phrase in our family. Right, well known. <laughs> Use it. <laughs> right, all right, you did it again. Oh, dad, I can't believe it. You know, dad, I'm sorry. Ah, don't say I'm sorry. If you're truly sorry, you just wouldn't do it again. Give me your phone. Right? Third week, fourth week, fifth week, when it seems like there's nothing else you can take away from them, you're just finally like, boom! Now the terminal sentence comes. 
right? No phone for a whole week. <laughs> you nuts! You could no, 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 no. You know, when, that, when I do that with the simple phone thing, let me, let me just tell you what God's talking about here through the, through the Holy Spirit to the hand of Paul. God's ultimate wrath, God's ultimate fury is going to be demonstrated, my friends, not through the tribulation period, not just merely through um, the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the, of the millennial kingdom. It's going to ultimately be in Revelation 20 at the great white throne when God said, see, here are millennia upon millennia upon millennia upon millennia. Here's a book that's even been held for you for your learning. You are living among a great cloud of witnesses of people that live the joy of Jesus Christ. I've allowed you, I even told you in the future what I was going to do to give you more patience and you still said no. Sorry. Boom. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. See how patient God is, my friends. And what does that do for us who are alive and remaining, who know Jesus Christ? Oh my goodness, there's still time. Amen. There's still souls around me. There's still time. And oh, won't you be saved? Won't you know Jesus? This emptiness you're feeling in your heart, only he can feel. I know you've been grasping after joy here, joy there, happiness here, through things and people, but it's all going to come empty. You've seen that. Won't you consider my Jesus, please, my Jesus, please? And he has global intentions, doesn't he? Verses 25 and verse 26. Very, very clear. He, he cites a couple texts here from the book of Hosea. And Hosea tells us prophetically that it's not just going to be the Jews who are going to have the promise of a Savior coming through them and the opportunity to be saved. But there's going to be a people, the Gentiles, who I will call my people, who were not originally my people, the Jews. And the gospel is not just going to become available to one nation, but God's eternal purposes in eternity past was for the, 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 the glory of his Son to be shown and demonstrated to all peoples. Amen? Amen. I read a book recently, and... Uh, the book outlined very, very carefully that if you have a disciple-making people, that one of the fruits, you know, they say when you get up to preach God's people, look across your congregation. If you have a disciple-making people, the congregation of those people should more and more reflect the ethnic balance in your community. And I thought, oh, wow. I didn't really think about that before I read the book, but when I read the book and I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Praise God. That's what we're seeing here. When you think about the demographics of the city of Mena and the surrounding area, increasingly so, we have an ethnic balance demonstrating that God's grace was not just to the Jew, it's to all, every tribe, tongue, and nation, correct? And may we always have an ethnic balance in our, in our, in our church community that's demonstrative of your disciple-making work in our community. Right? God desires 
the gospel to go forward globally, beginning right here in our own town. Again, he quotes Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 to prove his point. Scripture tells us that it is always God's intention to grant Abraham global spiritual influence. Even remember the unconditional covenant made with Abraham. What did he say? It's not just for Jews, Abraham, your descendants, but through you, all the nations of the world would be what? Would be blessed. He even said it to Abraham. So what settles our grieving hearts when people aren't around us to be seen to be being saved? God is still saving. He does so fairly, equitably, justly. He does so globally, and he does so through you individually being ambassadors here, through us continuing to connect interdependent, like-minded works in our region and our country to reach our country for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to connect those like-minded, interdependent works throughout our country to reach the world through Christ every tribe, tongue, and nation. So I say keep doing what you're doing, okay? Amen. Keep doing what you're doing, and the Spirit of God will bless that. So Paul reminds the Gentiles seated in the Roman congregation, and by the way, the saved Gentiles in the Roman church congregation was, were, the, were, were among the majority, and there was just a, a few saved Jews in the Roman church at this time. So he's telling these people that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we conclude this morning with the understanding that God saves with sincere intention. What do I mean by this? He saves so with sincere intention. Well, he uses here some words from Isaiah. And the words from Isaiah are very, very clear. That though there be millions of Jews, only a remnant would be saved. And basically what he's saying here is what Jesus said, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. Few there be that find it, All right? Again, that's a mystery to us. If you think about it too much, you'll lose your mind. If you don't think about it at all, you'll lose your soul. It is what it is. I'll let God figure it out. He's got this. All I can tell you is God fairly and equitably and righteously saved at least a remnant among national Israel. Praise the Lord. And why do we praise the Lord for that? Read the genealogies of the Gospels, particularly Matthew chapter 1. And you'll find God using both the unrighteous Jew and the righteous Jew to bring about the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And through that remnant, He came. And all the world would be blessed, not just the Jewish people, but all the world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's very sincere about his intentions. Matthew chapter 10, it's very clear. When Jesus sends out his disciples, where does he send them first? He sends them to Jerusalem. After all those, right, millennia of time where the where the majority, not just the remnant, had the opportunity to respond to Christ, and they hadn't, and yet Jesus still sends them out to Jerusalem first. And that's even after what John says in John chapter 1, Jesus came unto his own, and his own what? Rejected him. One more time, dear family member, <laughs> Jesus would say to his brothers, sisters, 
One more time. One more time, nation. One more time. One more time. God's very sincere, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has righteously used the nations of the world with sincere intention to have the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed to them. His divine intention is a demonstration of his grace to save and his patience on unbelief. But his intention is to demonstrate his love to all. Cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible for your own study as we close. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. As a matter of fact, my clock says 1129. Let's go there and read it, and we'll close with this passage. I think this is an outworking of Paul's mind. Since Paul wrote the letter to the Romans and he also wrote the letter to the Ephesians, let's see what his overall gospel conclusions were for the saints in the church of Ephesus, which were comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Let's look at some practical conclusions here this morning. Let's look at Ephesians 2 and verse 19. So then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. speaking to Jew and Gentile, because if you remember earlier in the chapter, he's dealing with issues of Judaizers and so forth, and we won't get into that, but he's speaking to, to both now who are in Jesus Christ. You both used to be strangers and aliens, but you're not anymore. You're fellow citizens with among the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. For this reason, the grammar continues. Here's the explanation. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you, um, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This is the gospel. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, it has is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of whom I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Remember, it's God's grace that saves. God's grace does not condemn. Which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, a very least of all saints, this grace was given. He's a Jew now, remember. To me, this very least of all saints, this grace was given too. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the life, through the what? church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Wow. He says with sincere intention, I read one author who said, the nation of Israel rejected his will, but this did not defeat God's purposes. 
He went on to say, at the exodus of Israel from Egypt, at the exodus, God rejected the Gentiles and chose the Jews so that though the Jew, through the Jews, he might ultimately save the Gentiles. God's sincere. He's comprehensive. He loves to save people. He does so fairly, equitably, and justly. Amen? Amen. And he's patient. The primary attribute mentioned here, he's patient in the midst of all of these ways that he saves. He's patient. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. And I know, Lord, this has been a little bit more impassioned message from me this morning. I trust it was given with the passion that, and the balance that, that you may have given it. I don't know. I, I just hope so. But I pray, Lord, that we would all leave here comforted in our hearts that you still save. And, and because you save fairly, righteously, equitably, you save righteously, we're ready now, Lord, to know that you want to use us as ambassadors as we continue, Lord, to struggle with our anguish over those we've shared Christ with and yet they still reject. So, Lord, um, we look forward to a harvest that you'll give Grace Church a mentor even this year because we know that you save faithfully, mercifully, and righteously. And for those who are among us, Lord, that have heard so much, I pray that a work of thy spirit would be so profound in their hearts today. The scales would be pulled from their eyes and that they would see that they can be made whole and not just an intellectual knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in surrendering their lives to him, and turning from their sin and placing their faith in him as our Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that they would go from brokenness to wholeness in Jesus Christ, even today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.